Good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. Today we are going to introduce the main antagonist in the story of Esther, a man named Haman called the enemy of the Jews. Of all the many lessons that can be found in chapter 3, there's one central theme from which all of the rest of the circumstances of the story revolve, and it is the theme of worship. Thanks for joining us today as we look for the practical responses for Christian living in a culture that demands false worship. Of the wisdom literature that's given to us in God's Word, Psalm 1, the first one begins with these words, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the way of the wicked, or stand in the place of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. That's how wisdom starts for us. It's interesting, I'm not sure you've ever seen this before, that there's a progression in that first verse. Did you catch it? The first thing that the individual is doing is he's walking in the way of the wicked. So it's, it's at a distance. He sees those who may be up to nefarious atta- uh, um, uh, things and, and is not right with them. He's just walking by them or near them. But pretty soon he's not walking anymore. What's the next thing that we see him doing? Now he's standing among them. And so from a distance, he looks like he's classified as one of them as well. But that's not where evil ends. For pretty soon, not as he just walking or standing, but now he's sitting among them, a, a contributor to the mockers and the wicked and the sinful in this world. Do you know that's how evil works? Do you know that that is the strategy of those opposed to the rule of Jesus Christ? It's to catch you at a distance and then in softening, gradually encourage you to come closer to sin. See, we're not so bad. Sin's not going to hurt you. And then pretty soon, once you develop a taste for it, you're addicted. And you're characterized and defined by evil such that you are indistinguishable from the wicked. When I was in high school, I worked a job over in uh, Spread Eagle, just outside of Florence, at what was called the Eagle's Nest. It's a little supper club there. Anybody know know where that is if you've been through that? What's it called today? It's a... Nobody knows. Nobody knows. Okay. <laughs> okay. It used to be called the used to be called the Eagles Next, and I was the dishwasher. That's that's the most glorious job there is. I'll just have you know. Serving the dishwasher. Now, uh, one thing that the Eagles Nest was known for was uh, not only its prime rib, which was fantastic, but they had a baked French onion soup. Let me tell you something. That's a dishwasher. That's the worst thing you could ever get. Baked French onion. Might as well call it concrete dish. That's what they should call it. So you'd walk in, and I remember in the back, that's the first thing you'd smell after one minute there in the kitchen. All you could smell was baked French onion. And then after one hour there, everything smelled like an onion. And then after one night of work, do you know what would happen? You wouldn't smell it anymore. It, it, it would somehow disappear. It'd go away. And, I, and I'd go home, and, I, and I'd dress from my work clothes, and I'd set them aside. And then the next day, once I got close to those clothes, do you know what aroma you would smell wafting? Onion. Smells like onion. You know, we, we too have a very similar characteristic, like my work clothes. You and I were created like this. Do you guys know what this is? This is a sponge. You know that's what you are? You are. You, you are a sponge. 
And the world around us is constantly going to be drip, drip, dripping in its influencing values until, and this is something that happens with a sponge, um, if I put a little water on it, you'll see it's not going to leak out, right? It, it's absorbed. And I can pour a little bit more, a little bit more. I can keep pouring until what happens? What's the word I'm looking for here? It becomes saturated. And it's at that point, it doesn't contain any more. And everything that's in this sponge is exactly what which was poured into it. This is what you're like. This is what I'm like. And if you and I are not careful giving attention to that which is being poured into us, you may risk being confused as indistinguishable from the world around you. This morning, we're going to be in Esther chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there with me. And as we do, uh, I'm going to highlight for you a single lesson through this. We're going to look as to the nature of worship in our lives, seeing it contrasted with the way the characters in the citadel of Susa are practicing and demanding worship. And we're going to see if we can identify any parallels to how you and I face a world that's drip, 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 trying to get you to carry its values forward. Esther chapter 3, we're going to read through the whole chapter. Verse 1 says this. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officers at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman. For the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. When the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day, they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore, they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them that he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month, the month of Nisan, they cast the pur, that is, the lot, in the presence of Haman to select a day in a month. And the lot fell on the twelfth month, the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Xerxes, There's a certain people dispersed and scattered among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, whose customs are different from those of all other people and who do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them, and I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the royal treasury for the men who carry out this business. 
So the king took his signet ring from his finger, gave it to Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Then on the 13th day of the first month, the royal secretaries were summoned. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people, all Haman's orders to the king's satraps, the governors of the various provinces, and the nobles of the various peoples. These were written in the name of, the king, of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th, month of the 12th, 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued in the law of every province and to be made known to the people of every nationality so that they would be ready for that day. Spurred on by the king's command, the couriers were sent out and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was in bewilderment. All right, this is our, our story for this morning. Um, a few preliminaries before we begin on some observations um, or conclusions. Uh, first of all, we're introduced to another character here, Haman the Agagite. There's a reason why I had us listen to the entirety of chapter 15 from 1 Samuel today. And the reason is because that is where we are introduced to Haman's long-lost descendant, King Agag. King Agag was king of a people called the Amalekites. And it was God's command to King Saul that you are to wipe out completely the people of the Amalekites. And did Saul do that? He did not. And we learned before that Mordecai, who is the hero here of the story of the book of Esther, he himself is a descendant of King Saul. And so you have Saul and King Agag back in history now having a second go-around through Mordecai and Haman. That's the first thing that I want you to see. Secondly, and perhaps most importantly for our study this morning, uh, there are two words that are used in verse 2. It says, all of the royal officials of the king's gate, two things here, knelt down and paid honor to Haman. Now, who was it that said this is what was supposed to happen? Do you remember who it was? The next line says that it was the king that commanded this to happen. And so even the highest people in the land, who, by the way, aren't even mentioned anymore. The text says that there's some time that passes. Persian culture had a multiplicity of advisors, but here something has changed. Now we have one who is elevated higher than any others, Haman, the Agagite. And everyone is commanded. When Haman walks by, do you know what you do? You bow down. You kneel down and you give honor and homage to him. Now, in the biblical text that we have, uh, paying honor to somebody is not something that's completely unheard of, even for kings of Israel. However, when these two Hebrew words are used together, they, in the entirety of our scriptures, only and always reference worship. When you kneel down, when you bow down, when you pay homage, those two words linked together are 100% of the time referring to worship. This from the Moody Bible Commentary says, the Hebrew verbs here translated bow down and paid homage when used together are attested only in the sense of worship. 
The Bible Knowledge Commentary says that the same pair of words does not occur in any of the passages describing homage to another human. Instead, when these two verbs are used together, the individual is performing them in the presence of God. I want to make sure that we caught that. It's not just paying homage. They're told to bow down in an essence, bending the will of their hearts to recognize Haman. By the way, this is not something that's completely foreign uh, to ancient Mesopotamia. We see the country that uh, was in charge just before the Persians in Babylon declaring for three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that every time you see the image of the statue of the king and hear all of the instruments play, what were they commanded to do? Again, bow down and worship. So I want to make sure that we're on the same page here, that we're talking about an issue of worship. Lastly, uh, just before we dive into some conclusions, uh, there's a word that's mentioned in verse 7. It's called the purr. It's translated for us uh, as casting the lot, but it's a Persian word because theologically these are two separate things. In Hebrew tradition, sometimes casting a lot is a common practice. It's a way of discerning the will of God. However, it is always given with a recognition of submitting that wherever the lot is cast, it will be done in accordance to God's provision and providence. That's happening within the Hebrew scriptures, but that's not at all what is happening with Haman. When they cast the dice, when they cast the purr, what they're doing is invoking their own gods. And in fact, for Haman, this would have been for the ancestral gods of the Amalekites in a complete common practice with Persian culture, which was likely called Zoroastrianism. All right, everybody good with those three preliminaries? Haman, the Agagite, ancestral enemy of the Jews. He belongs to the lineage of King Agag, the king that we heard about previously that was left alive in disobedience by King Saul. Secondly, to bow down and pay homage is a representation of what? Worship. And then lastly, the way they're divining, the the orchestration of choosing the day to destroy the Jews is a false form of worship, casting the die. Three things that I want to draw your attention to. First is this. Everyone worships. This is a reality of humanity. Everyone worships. Everybody's being saturated by something. Everybody is. And whatever comes out of you when it's squeezed will define for you that which you worship. In fact, worship comes from an old English word, worth-ship. Meaning, worship is just simply whatever you ascribe worth to. And so what is the most valuable thing for you? What's the most valuable thing in your life? It's very likely that if you were squeezed, it may result in showing that which you worship. I wanted to give some other thoughts on this truth. Um, Worship, in definition, is an expression of devotion. So it's an act. It's not accidental. We come to worship. And that worship is predicated upon that which we are devoted to. Now, I want to answer some objections you may have here because you might think, well, Pastor, aren't, aren't I supposed to be devoted to my spouse? Are you saying that I'm worshiping my spouse? Or devoted to my children? Or even my country? Do you think it's possible that somebody could falsely and accidentally be worshiping their spouse? Do you think that's possible? Do you think somebody could have an idolatrous 
heart presence towards their family or their children? Do you think that's possible? Do you think it's possible for somebody to overly exalt their country? Yeah, absolutely. And so when we're talking about devotion, we need to make sure we understand that every form of devotion that you have must be defined by God and God's law. And when it is defined by God and God's law, you will maintain God as your highest form of worship and therefore your highest form of devotion. Secondly, worship is a way of life. Not only is worship something that you and I do by intention, you will worship without even meaning to. I have been uh, interacting uh, via email with an atheist who claims he doesn't worship anything. And so I asked him, well, what's your highest value? And his highest value is whatever's good for himself. Can you see where my next reply was going? Can't you see what you worship then? You're worshiping yourself because that is your highest devotion. And so whether you realize it or not, whatever you are most devoted to, you will be manifesting by a classification of worship. Lastly, and this one is a doozy here, you will worship that which you love. Let that sink in for a moment. You will worship that which you love, which means love is the most dangerous substance on earth. And it requires definition. If we live in a culture that simply says, oh, love is love. What they're really claiming is, I reserve the right to define love any which way it is. And when you do that, you will find you will worship whatever you're most devoted to. And so these being characteristics of this very first observation, I want to share with you um, what Jesus says, because if you if you look with me back into the text and if I were to ask the question, what was it that the Persians worshipped? Did you see what they did with Haman? They elevated him. They elevated him to the highest place. And so they worshiped self. This is what Jesus says. He turned to his disciples. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny who? You must deny yourself. You can't worship self. Remember, it was the king's command that said, Haman's the guy. Bow down and worship Haman. Because they love to worship themselves. In fact, I'm not sure you caught this in Tom's reading. Uh, did you see what happened with Saul? Saul wasn't there when Samuel went to see him. You go back and, and read this again. Samuel went to approach Saul, but he wasn't there where he should have been. Instead, he went to create and erect a monument to whom? To himself. Anybody here ever guilty of worshiping yourself? Putting yourself first? If you look with me back into the text, you'll see another uh, instance of worship. Not only do they worship self, but they worship man's authority, man's law. For it was the king who commanded them to bow down. If you remember back from chapter 1, in fact, they had a particular kind of rule back then. If we make a law, it stands Forever. Do you remember that from chapter 1, verse 19? It's called the law of the Medes and the Persians, which, by which nobody can repeal. Who does that sound like to you? Who, who is it that when he says something, it cannot be repealed? Who is that? That's God. And if we suddenly claim, well, that's the same thing we can do, well, this is now an idolatrous worship of self. Watch what Jesus says in Matthew 23. He turned to the crowds and the disciples He says, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Moses was the lawgiver. 
So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. They're coming up with their own rules, their own laws. Now, churches don't do that today, do they? That doesn't happen, does it? We obey it as though it's gospel and it doesn't come from God's word at all. Lastly, one other thing that you might notice here in the text. Look at me in verse 9. When Haman was trying to convince Xerxes, he says, If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them all, and I'll put 10,000 talents of silver. 10,000 talents of silver. That's going to fly right by you, not knowing how much they're talking about. But if you have a note in your Bible, it may say something to say that the entire GDP, what's the right word? GDP, gross domestic product of Persia, was 15,000 talents. So 10,000 talents is literally two-thirds of the entire nation's budget. Does Haman have that kind of money? Now, when you first read this, it might sound like a bribe, and it's not. Here's what Haman means. Historically, Xerxes has just been involved in a very costly war. And so they're looking to raise money. Haman figured, I can do a two-for-one. I can kill all the Jews who are the ancient archenemy of Agagites and the Amalekites and... We can plunder all their stuff. And when we kill them, we'll plunder it. And that is how we will repay all the soldiers who lost money in the battle. I want you to notice that's exactly what the king says. Look in verse 10. The king takes off his ring, uh, gives it to Haman, uh, the enemy of the Jews. Verse 11, keep the money. He's not saying keep the money like I'm not going to take the bribe. He's saying do exactly what you plan to do. When you kill them, like do what you want with the people plunder and all of that plunder will be the money that gets repaid to the royal treasury. Just one other note on that. If you look over in chapter four, you'll see verse seven confirming this interpretation. It says Mordecai told everything that happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. This is not a bribe by Haman. This is a way of balancing the budget Because what do you think they were worshiping? Was that money I heard in the back there? Is it it hard or easy to worship money? What do you think? Money is going to continually show up in your life as that thing for which you will find security. Do you know what God says? You can't serve two masters. You can't serve. You'll hate the one, love the other, be devoted one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So I I want you to see everybody worships. Everybody worships. And here you have self-worship. You have man's word and law as worship. And you have money as worship. Secondly, the world will demand worship. I hope that you're even seeing this in our uh, news headlines today. Uh, The way in which our own country right now is going through a time of struggle between where do we line up with the liberty that allows a people to be committed by conviction to what their God says or a legislature that wants you to bend the knee to what man says. And understand that the further we go to the rule and the glory of man, the more the world will demand worship. This is what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There was a consequence they would have to pay if they don't worship. Incidentally, we see the same thing happening here. Thirdly, refusing to worship as the world requires will result 
in hatred. If the world says this is what's right and you don't do it, the world will hate you. Too often I see uh, debates uh, or uh, they're, they're on the street between those who believe in the abolition of abortion as the greatest evil on this earth and those who are continuing to practice it, falsely thinking that it's some form of health care. And do you know what it always, 100% of the time, looks like? Hatred. It's always hatred. If you do not line up with what the world says and bend the knee and bow your heart, they will hate you. Now, this shouldn't surprise you. This is exactly what Jesus tells his disciples. This from John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember, I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obey my teaching, they'll obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. If they had come and spoke, if, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them the works no one else did, they wouldn't be guilty of sin. As it is, they have seen, and yet, have, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fill what was written by the law. They hated me without reason. Church, I want you to be prepared that the battle lines essentially are being drawn and understand Jesus' words say you don't hate your enemies when they despise you, when they ridicule you, when they mistreat you. You are to do what? Pray for them. You're to love them. And they will hate you even more. So how, how does this line up with Christians today? Well, what's a Christian response to these, these observations? I want to give you three reversals of this. The first is this. Worship for the Christian must be comprehensive. Now, listen real close. If you haven't caught anything so far, make sure you catch this. Coming to church on Sunday is not going to cut it. If you think this is all God wants out of you, corporate worship to sit, and I know I'm going long and we got a bunch to do, I don't know. If you think this is what God wants out of you, you're missing the whole point. God wants your heart. He wants all of you, not two hours a week. Romans 12.1 says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Colossians, similarly, whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord. I think this one probably summarizes it best of all. From the law, the great Shema for the children of Israel. For you and I today, what's the first and greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with, you know, about an hour's worth of my heart. About two hours worth of my soul. How much? All. He wants all. Here's what this means for you and I. It means that worship for you must be comprehensive. There's no version of your life that says, I'm devoting my time to God by reading a devotional right now, and later I'm going to go on do what I want to do. You are called as a Christian to spend every moment of every day in worship to God, because worship is something you do out of love. 
Everybody with me on that? That's the first one. Secondly, God alone is to be worshipped. Now, this shouldn't be too hard for us. A little bit further in Deuteronomy 6. Fear the Lord your God. Serve him only. Take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the peoples around you. This one really should be kind of Christianity 101. My point in bringing it up to you this morning is that you mean just bowing down to Haman? Might be wrong. What do you think? I want you to notice something in the text. Look, look back in verse 4. Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated. For, watch this now. For Mordecai had told them... He's a what? Can you read between the lines on this? The rationale that finally broke Mordecai because they came day after day after day. Dude, you better, you better bow down. Like, this is the law. Why aren't you bowing down? This is, what the, this is what the government tells you to do. Why are you not doing it? Finally, he's like, guys, I'm a Jew. Now, there's more. There's more that's being said there. Why does that matter? Because the Jews were told, you shall have no other gods. I don't give, God doesn't give his glory to anybody else. I don't worship anybody else. You could say, do it all day long. I will never do it. I hope that you can see the quick parallel to your life as a Christian. Why should your life as a Christian perhaps model and parallel Mordecai's within the governmental pressure of false worship? Well, it's because my heart belongs to who? I worship him alone. I worship God alone. All right, thirdly and lastly, failing to worship the one true God will result in complete dysfunction and ultimate destruction. If you miss this this morning, if your life is a once, one hour a week church appointment, this is worship, and then leave me alone. You know what that's going to result in? Your life is going to be filled with dysfunction. If you have competing multiple loves in your life, your life is really going to be hard because God's going to allow you to experience the bankruptcy of those false gods. If you fail to love the one true God. In fact, do you notice that's what happened at the end of our chapter? Right? Haman and the king, they sit down to drink, satisfied that they just issued this decree countrywide. They're having a good time, but what's it say the people are doing in the capital? Did you catch it? Very last word bewildered what now we're supposed to do what with our neighbors the jews you want us to kill them and take their stuff i don't get that what did they do did they do something wrong ultimately and this is fast forwarding into two sundays from now you're going to see that it results in complete and ultimate destruction of your life too meaning that your life as bankrupt as it will be on this side of eternity is also going to be experienced with an eternity separated from god because you have been exchanged by God. If you don't want him, he won't force himself upon you. And to give you anything else, just like we see happening to Saul, it'll feel like a loss, not only now, but into eternity. So what do we do with this? How do you and I keep from being saturated by the drip, drip, drip of this world? I want to offer you three things. First is this recognition. You and I have to ask the question, who or what am I being told to kneel to right now? In what way is the culture around me trying to normalize sin? Did everybody catch that word that I used? Because that's the scheme of the evil one. 
The scheme of the evil one is to take that which presents itself opposed to the glory of the living God and to make you receive it as palatable. And so we're going to make sin funny. You're going to find it in sitcoms and TV shows and movies. You're going to laugh about it. Whereas a generation before, you would have gasped. You would have shocked at it. The generation being grown up in it is going to have it shoved into their face over and over until it becomes normal. Until it becomes something that no longer causes a scare of um, opposition. We're going to normalize it. Be very careful, church. Because you are being saturated. The world is working at this right now. To make it so that you don't see it as sinful the way God does. And so step here is, step number one is recognition. You and I need to be very careful that we do not become enculturated. Such that we no longer look or smell. In the case of French onion, baked French onion. Any different from the world. Number two, resistance. Are you prepared for opposition? Are you, are you prepared to be even able to articulate why it is I don't believe or think the way the world does? I would imagine that almost everybody here has the conviction, I don't agree with these things, but are you putting in the effort and the time to know how to articulate and give a defense of that which you hold to? That's going to take a bit of effort. And this is, for you and I, an act of defiance, civil disobedience, or resistance. In fact, I want to just highlight one thing for you. It's easy to miss. In verse 4, you have um, a Hebrew repetition of Mordecai with an older character in the, in the um, Old Testament. His name was Joseph. Do you guys remember Joseph? Sold into slavery. And then in Potiphar's, Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife used to come to him, trying to lure him, trying to tempt him. To have illicit sexual relations with him. And the text says day after day she came. What's happening here to Mordecai? The royal officials. Day after day. Drip, drip, drip. Now you remember Joseph's response. He was prepared. He got thrown into jail for that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They got thrown into the fiery furnace for their disobedience. What are you prepared for? You ready? Might be, not be much further down the road for you and I. Lastly is this, and it's uh, one more R word, replacement. Um, I, I want you to know that it's not enough for you to simply take a stance against the onion stink of the world. It's not enough to stand against it. You need to replace it with something because you will worship something. And so my question here is, where should the worship of Jesus be more saturated in your life? What area of your life, maybe career, maybe hobbies, maybe the things you listen to, maybe things you read or watch, what area in your life needs less of the drip of the world and needs more Jesus? Because it's not going to do enough to just create a vacuum by standing against something. You need to replace that vacuum with worshiping God. Uh, Just real quickly as I conclude... Uh, This for me in my life was found when I went to Bible college. Uh, I grew up as a Christian. I lived as a Christian through my high school. We had a Bible study that I helped lead at lunch on Wednesdays at my high school. 
But there were all kinds of other places in my life where Jesus wasn't involved or invested. And I didn't see them. I didn't even recognize them because I was so used to the smell of the world in my life. It wasn't until I went to Bible college and I met peered other believers, Christians who were my age, who had been trained because of a godly discipleship in their church to live for a love of Jesus all the time. It wasn't until I saw that that I was like, that's what I've been hungry for. That's what I've been wanting. And do you know what that was for me? It was like, it was like the dirty clothes were in the hamper and it was like, it was like fresh air. Discovering the replacement of putting Jesus into my life was fuel and freshness that helped me replace whatever stink the world had. So I want to leave you with that idea. Are you able to recognize the areas? Are you prepared to make the resistance? And then where do we need to replace some of that smell with more, more Jesus? Amen.